Welcome to The Forest Garden, a podcast for gardeners who want to upgrade their landscapes into biodiverse food forest systems. On today's episode, we'll be interviewing Ken Asmus, owner of Oikos Tree Crops, based in Kalamazoo, Michigan. For the past 40 years, Ken has been working tirelessly to develop diverse populations of a wide range of edible plants, selecting for qualities like perenniality, flavor, cold hardiness, disease resistance, and many other factors in everything from perennial potatoes to wild goose plums and Chinese quince. Join us as we dive into the many projects Ken has conducted over the years. Stick with us. Ken Asmus, thank you for joining us today. Why don't we start things off with who you are and your personal background and how you were introduced to tree crops and edible systems? Sure. Well, my father, who is a um, postal employee, uh, bought a farm with another fellow postal employee, and uh, it was basically a wetland. It was about 130 acres, and on this little plot of land, there were some Christmas trees. The family business became Christmas trees over time. And on the same, there was a lot of wild blueberries and a lot of other wild plants. And this place was kind of like my laboratory, really, in the beginning. And, it gave, you know, it gave me a lot of experience. I began to kind of dive into that at an early age just because it was enjoyable. And I kept that with me no matter where I went. And whatever else I was doing in life, I, I that was a, something I always came back to. And when I moved to the west side of the state of Michigan, I started a farm. I wanted to kind of replicate that farm. We actually had two farms. One was 130 acres, which was about 30 acres of Christmas trees. And then we had another bigger farm that's 400 acres and a lot of Christmas trees. It was kind of introduced me to the nursery industry you know, in my hometown, Saginaw, Michigan. And then when I moved to this side of the state, I wanted to have something similar. And I did find a small parcel of land, 13 acres. And I bought, you know, I started planting trees on this, this, these 13 acres. And it was a field. And it was right after college. I had started it in the early 1980s. And um, I started a family at that time. And, you know, all the normal things that people do. And I started planting more and more trees. And that was kind of the impetus of the nursery. So that's kind of like the nuts and bolts of it. But in, in reality, I was very deeply connected to the plants. And I was just very fascinated about plants. And even in college, I got my degree in biology. I spent as much time as I could learning about ecology. I spent as much time as I could learning about agriculture. And I kind of did that. Well, I, I did do that with my farm. I tried to make it as ecologically friendly as possible. And I did that by using adopting organic methods early on. During that goal of wanting to share, you know, to do that, I wanted to share it with other people. So I love uh, bringing people to my farm and having them eat and taste test different fruits. And that's really a great joy for me. 
Great. And so your selection of the nursery, the, the Oikos Tree Crops Nursery is, is very unique. And um, I'm wondering, you know, what, uh, when you were first starting out, was that something that you knew right away that, you know, you wanted to combine, you know, agriculture and ecology? Um, but did, you also had the fascination with sort of not the run of the mill cultivars and varieties, but maybe a more exploratory species and, and varieties. Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So I really had some goal that I wanted to have a commercial fruit farm. And I just loved fruit farming. And uh, I thought it was such a great thing. And I wanted to buy a fruit farm, but it was very expensive. I remember finding a few for sale. And it was just not very feasible to do that. But in the meantime, I did attend many North American Fruit Explorer uh, meetings. And at that time, you could go to Cornell and you could go to Ohio State and you could go to Purdue and you could see how they bred things, how they created fruit varieties. And they had these large collections of fruit there. And I thought, well, they've got really beautiful collections, but the breeding of a fruit is so refined and so selective that I thought, well, this is not applicable to what I'm doing. Um, the other aspect of it was it was meeting an industry's criteria for what is good fruit. And in, within the groups of all the different aspects of the North American fruit explorers, there are people there that grew like beach plums or maybe they, <laughs> they grew apricots or something. And they were, they were experimenting. And this experimental aspect, of course, is much more enjoyable than if you actually had to make a living from it. And so I began to kind of change my idea that everything on my farm would be grafted. Instead, everything on my farm would be a seedling. So the idea was to try to capture populations and grow as many populations of plants. So that's kind of how that, you know, the diversity of the farm got started. And then just by luck, more or less, or by whatever, people started also shared with me uh, seeds. So I was constantly uh, exchanging seeds with people and we would send each other seeds back and forth. This was prior to the internet. So everyone would write letters. <laughs> and I have a lot of those letters still. Sometimes I look at them and they're very funny. And there are people that were like me in that, and probably like you, that, you know, they just enjoyed having a diversity of these things that you can't really necessarily find either because they're not within an industry standard. They're outside of that. And it's kind of kind of cool in some ways too. <laughs> Ken, I really resonate with what you were saying about the diversity and the, you know, using seedlings building a collection of, of plants that is not just this, the exact clone of something that someone's been working on, but really kind of selecting for the area that you're in. Could you sort of talk for a moment about where exactly Oikos Tree Crops was based, you know, the hardiness zone? Because my understanding is it was kind of a, a colder zone. Right. Um, you know, that shapes what sort of tree crops and what plants you're selecting for. It did. And yes, absolutely. Because the farm itself is in an area that is on the border of a fruit growing district. So in other words, you, there's possibilities that you could grow on the very best sites. You could grow peach trees there, for instance. Is it zone five 
zone six ish kind of area. Now it's it's not it's even maybe zone six ish and zone seven, and um, that the zone five area meant that I had lows is down as low as one one year one of my thermometers tipped at minus twenty nine degrees Fahrenheit. We had temperatures once at one hundred and eight Fahrenheit. So there's quite a bit of variation. There was the soil there is very dry, sandy. It's a dune soil. And it was very hilly. The property was hilly with a couple of frost pockets, very deep frost pockets. The farm itself is kind of a long, narrow, it's 13 acres. So, you know, to try to figure out what I was going to plant by visiting other fruit growers, like say, for instance, the American persimmon, I was like, boy, you know, there's all the persimmons are selected more for Southern or Midwestern strains what if i grew a lot of persimmons so <laughs> so i did that i because they were they were really good if you could find a right fully ripe one and so i planted them about five feet apart seven feet apart i think all the way around the whole farm so there's maybe two thousand running feet of hedgerow of persimmon so as i planted more and more trees within there but some things were more experimental and I wasn't really even sure it would work for some of them, for some some of the crops. So I killed a lot of trees or I tried to grow a lot of trees, you know, that I thought, well, I'll give it a try and see what happens. So my pistachios didn't work out, but the persimmons did. So Yeah, that that's, it seems like a good strategy to, to test the limits of your site to... Uh... To try out and maybe overplant and expect a pretty big die-off, but maybe the ones that survive are the the hardiest. Did you find that to be the case that you could, you know, you planted these seedlings and to, maybe ones that were were on the border or or definitely outside the border of where of the zone that you were in, but but the individuals that were more cold hardy would it be pretty clear by the the first year or the second year after uh, after germination? that which ones were hardy and which ones weren't, or did it take time? And then you found out, okay, five years later, and I guess I guess it also depends on how variable the climate is. If you get a cold snap, uh, maybe it survives for the first five years and then there's a cold snap and, and most of them die. Yeah, you can get, <laughs> you get excited, you know, when you have something and then winter takes out the fig trees or whatever. The one thing was there was some plants that, I was a little surprised at their just overall adaptability, uh, meaning that they could withstand such cold temperatures and they were fine. And I remember growing live oaks for a while. I was growing uh, several kinds of live oaks, Kirkus virginiana. And I was doing that because of the quality of the acorns. The acorns were really quite delicious. And I'd gotten some up to you know, seven, eight feet tall. And uh, then a winter came and it took them, took them out. I thought, well, you know, that was, that was close, <laughs> but most plants, you know, like once I grew some South American or Mexican cherries from Mexico called Capuli cherries, hoping I could have like a sweet cherry type plant that is like our black cherry Prunus serotina. And which, of which it's a relative of. And I grew that and every year it would die to the ground. You know, there was no, 
no ands, ifs, or buts about that. So there are, there are limits, but, you know, I think over time you kind of figure out ways maybe around it or just move on to some, something else. There's so much more in nature that you can just, you know, find another avenue to go. So, Ken, what were some of the plants that did succeed after so many years of selecting and checking out improved varieties or doing your own selection work? I'm sure there were some standouts. The hickories, the hickory family, you know, everything from pecans to hickons and um, everything in between the shell bark hickories and the shag bark hickories. I grew a lot of those from seed. And, you know, it takes quite a few years for those to fruit. I was really surprised at how productive the pecans were. These were from the um, Northern Nut Growers collections that they did on an island in uh, the Mississippi River, like north of Davenport, Iowa, somewhere in there. That area had these pecans that were small, but almost all of them were very, very productive and ripened completely, 100% in Michigan. And there's one or two that I gave a name to just because the, the yields were so heavy. But for the most part, they were all very good trees. Another one that really surprised me were some of the trees that I grew that I thought, well, those are from the South. They're not going to survive. And I have a really nice stand of bald cypress that I got from uh, Alabama and Georgia. And then I tried other types of Southern trees species at my farm that didn't do as well. They were, the soil was just not as adaptable to them. But um, I have a fairly decent magnolia collection that I grew from seed from throughout the world I, when I belong to the Magnolia Society and they're, they're scattered throughout. And probably the best, probably the most amazing thing that I have at the farm is my oak collection because those, I grew a lot of those and planted those around the farm. And I have all sorts of bur oaks that from everywhere from Texas which grow fine in Michigan and all, all the way from Texas, Oklahoma, to even up into Canada, I have some very early maturing ones. And it's kind of interesting to see just, you know, the difference in these trees. We kind of view them all as the same, but there is some slight differences, you know, depending on where they're from and how they grow. You'll spot these variations that people use for ornament ornamentation, too. There might be like a columnar type of bur oak, or maybe it's a type of bur oak that has a flat top or something. <laughs> and I've never really did anything with any of those, but I one of the things I did every winter was I would limb, limb those up. And as I limb those trees up, then I began to plant more in the understory of those trees as well. So it's kind of kind of like a forest with little shrubs and stuff all scattered throughout it, different types of cherries, as well as uh, raspberries and so forth. And you mentioned ecology being an interest of yours from, from early on. When you're arranging these different plants in your, in your landscape, were there any particular wildlife species or ecosystem relationships, uh, niches, guilds? that sort of thing uh, that you, you noticed or any, any plants in particular that were really valuable for, for wildlife? Well, the, it's interesting that, you know, because it was a field, 
I can remember thinking, man, there's not a lot of things out here. <laughs> but there were there were snakes, a few snakes. Deer would occasionally wander through, but not really hang out. There was a groundhog or two. I think that was it. When I started letting things grow up, there was a lot more animals coming into the farm from the surrounding areas. Some of those animals stayed. And I have a fairly decent box turtle grouping there now, which I hadn't expected. But I think everything that seeds in that now I'm beginning to see, uh, because of the mature trees, that's where really you start to see more and more mature woodland plants start uh, seeding in. You'll see many native plants and non-native plants growing together. The one plant that probably is the most beneficial is multiflora rose, because what happens is it prevents deer from getting in there and browsing. And underneath multiflora rose is a very good area for seed bed for other things to grow. So often I'll let those uh, stay for a year or two. But eventually when I have to collect, I have to cut most, most of those out. But what I'll do is I'll start to save things that I like if it's a seedling apple or something or a, a seedling beech plum that is spread. So I guess what, what I would say about the guild thing, it kind of, nature kind of sorts itself out and you get this diversity throughout the whole farm where you really don't have to plant anything much anymore. I'm trying to change it a little bit more now when fill in the things that have that I'm cutting, but I'm also taking wood to the mill, to a sawmill too. So I'm kind of doing two things and then I'm putting in some of the last remaining plants that I feel that I need, I'm a little short on. But again, the all the diversity, everything from what would be considered native diversity like uh, basswood, uh, spice bush, you're seeing those come in even more now. And it's all because of multiflora rose and other just kind of, it's kind of messy in certain areas. The messy thing is kind of good. You really don't have to do too much, but there are other things around the farm. I was really concerned. I was like, are any of my plants growing on my neighbor's property? <laughs> and so I went over on north on my north property and there's hardly anything growing there. It's really strange. It just happens to be the nice habitat of the deer walking on the seeds, pressing them into the ground, the other animals, the cover from the other shrubs, whether it's multiflora rose or something else. So you start to, you get this whole thing going and then I'll prune those up, whether it's an apple tree or a pear tree. So there's like a secondary layer in there too. And some of them I've got, you know, there's uh, some pear trees under the black oaks that are now like 25 and 30 feet tall. Anyway, it's just kind of fun to do that. Yeah, I, I love that. That's that's going to be really rewarding to see, in some cases, things you never really planted at all start to just regenerate and, and spread and hopefully not too far into your neighbor's zone unless uh, unless they want, want some pears. No, no, there, it's not. And it's weird. I'm seeing my neighbor's shrub crops growing on my farm. Like I noticed that he planted a lot of arrowwood viburnum viburnum dilatatum and i'm seeing that coming up in different spots and that's not for me i never planted them it's just funny you just created a, a nice environment for those seeds to to germinate in right i did could we spend a little bit of time talking about the mass amount of collections or improved selections that you've done i mean there's there's more than there's more than one i, I know that 
there's the perennial potatoes and there was a sunchoke selection that you did. Oh yeah. We could, there's a lot oh, we yeah. talk about, yeah. you know, the, uh, wild goose plums. I've heard about those. One of the most interesting things I, I saw you post about, at least to me, was an apricot that has like a nut that you can eat, like a seed within the apricot that you can eat, almost like an almond. Brianna apricot. Maybe we could start there. And yes, we, Brianna. Uh, yeah. Maybe yeah. we could start there and then we could uh, move into some of the other selections that you made. Sure. That that one actually was one of the one of the connections I had with the seed exchange was a guy who was very good at getting seeds. He was a he worked in the arboretum. He would get me seeds of things all the time. And we were constantly exchanging seeds. And one of those was Brianna, the Brianna apricot. That was listed as a prunus, what we call a Siberian apricot, which really doesn't have much flesh to it. It's the opposite of almost all apricots that you buy in the store. and But the flavor is phenomenal. And it's very dry. And it also has a pit, which is the oil is used for extraction for, for that. And some of them, many of them have very little of the toxic uh, compounds in them. Not arsenic, uh, but cyanide? the um, cyanide, yes. So it has very low cyanide, as far as I could tell. And then most of them, there's some that have a little larger fruit, and that's the selections I'm sending out as a cyan wood, the ones that are more orangish fruit with a very good color to them. Some of them are a lighter color, and some of them are really dark color. But the flavor is just phenomenal. And it's a population of apricots that no one really fiddled with very much but they're the huge yield of them and they have an ability to set fruit quickly much faster than normal apricots in other words the flowers come out they set fruit and then if there's some frost it's not quite as bad compared to the other apricots that i've grown so that was one that just came from an arboretum seed packet most of the time by the way with these arboretum seed packets People often say, well, you don't want to, if you're creating a plant collection, you don't want arboretum seed. And I go, why not? Well, because it's going to hybridize. And I go, well, you never know, you know, what could happen if you have a whole collection. And I never really found that to be a problem collecting or getting seeds from arboretums. I think a lot of times people want wild collected plants from the original germplasm in the mountains somewhere, wherever it's isolated. And I, I never really wanted that. I wanted something that was uh, undefined. So that, that was a good find, actually. I, I really am happy about that, that I was able to, to produce those and make them available. The idea of a, a nut tree that, or, you know, a, an apricot that also has an edible nut is just kind of mind-blowing to me. Could we talk about the, yeah. the Oikos Select Improved Daylily? Yeah, so there was there was many different types of daylilies I was growing from seed. I met an actual daylily breeder. I was buying plants from him when I had my landscape service. And I asked him about, you know, do you have any that really produce a lot of flowers, but are more on a tall scape, you know, not just an individual. And he mentioned one variety. And then I started growing seedlings from it and taste testing those. And compared them to the ones that are in Japan, which I got, I had seeds from uh, a species called uh, Middendorfi. And I would just like taste test something that wasn't too over the, the top flowery 
and no tang, not necessarily a lot of tang to them either. So it was kind of a mild flavor, but not too flowery. Very specific. <laughs> the Goldilocks of daylilies. Yeah, it had to be just right. But anyway, that the one sweet flava flavor was one, and the other one was the Mindorfi species. Those two I, I sold quite a few of over the years, yeah. So it was very popular. We sold a lot of those. <laughs> the funny thing is I tried many kinds of daylilies from seed. They're really so highly bred that they kind of, within one generation, you can see that many plants would just fail and die within a couple of years. And I think it's just because they were been selected so much, you know. I have to say, I've I've seen this plant, you know, the, the Oikos improved selection that my friend Kyle Doherty has planted at his place. And I mean, the flower before it actually opens is just, I mean, it's it's gigantic, you know, it's quite a larger something to throw in your stir. Yeah. Fry. Another improved selection that you made was the perennial perpetual potatoes. Can we talk about those a little bit? Yeah, so that that one, and this is something that was fairly, it's fairly easy to replicate. It was at a time where I had a uh, employee that was helping me. We were basically raising seedlings. We were growing the the heirloom potatoes, and some of them had produced fruit, which is not unusual. But most potatoes have been bred for sterility, male sterility, and we had gotten some to fruit, and we saved the fruit and processed the seeds, and then grew those out. And I, it, it was basically at a time in the nursery too, where the, I was helping my father with some of his health problems and taking care of watching more closely with him. And I kind of let a lot of these projects just go. And that was one of them. Um, but we did kind of prop it up and keep it going for about, I don't know, I think it was six or seven years and I went back to it, and I found that there were certain plants that seemed to overwinter better than others. In other words, even in frozen soil, they seemed to work pretty good. And so then I took some of those and put them in the freezer to test them, tried other things to see if I could turn them to mush. And uh, it was really a kind of interesting. There was probably something to do with the moisture in the soil, the moisture in the potato when it dries down. Whatever the reason was, I was able to create quite a population of those. And then when I was doing that, another thing that came up, which I was not aware of, and I learned this from Cultivariable, Bill Whitson, I think his name is, his website, he talks about the virus infections and how bad that is on potatoes. And so then I started looking at virus-free plants and also starting it, starting over again and trying to select for more fruitful potatoes. In other words, potatoes that actually fruit. And now today, the way that has the whole population has kind of moved forward is I'm using it as, a, as an understory plant under my oaks. So the idea is then you would just, if you needed potatoes, you would just either dig those up and eat them at like that or collect the berries and then grow them like you would uh, tomato plants. You just sprinkle them on the surface and water them in. That's kind of where that, that whole population left. And then the other thing, the other weird thing about that was it shrunk the potato. The potato size now is like very much smaller 
but the flavor is very good and there's no uh, solanine in them or anything. They're just from the same solanum tuberosa species. It's not like a hybrid uh, between species. But the fact that I was able to create this population that can stay outdoors and it'll self-regenerate consistently, but at the same time not have too many viruses or can grow in competition with other plants. That was the other aspect of it I found out, and this is something I was I didn't have any clue about, was that potatoes, you know, they have a root too. And they've never been selected for their roots. Not not the tubers, but the roots. And I found some potatoes have these insane roots that are super competitive against grass and against other things. So I started growing those more because of their drought tolerance. They hold the soil better. They're able to penetrate the soil deeper and go farther out, even without rain for over a month. They're still, they still look spectacular. So there's, there's quite a bit of variation. Once again, you have commercial breeding projects which are, it's maybe one in 80,000 that becomes a commercial potato variety. And then you have people like, like myself and, and many other plant breeders who work with potatoes. They're going, well, maybe we can, maybe we'll grow a, a different type of color of potato or a fingerling potato. But for me, it was like changing the way that potatoes grow and the way that they are able to compete with grass and with other plants. Because I, I still think these feral plants will probably show that they have the highest nutrition as well. So that's really that the whole thing with permaculture and what you guys are about, forest, the forest garden, is that you can create or find healthy fruits and vegetables that will grow with minimal care, but at the same time have the maximum nutrition in them. So the potato is a good representation of that. Along those lines of sort of the selecting for the things that are going to be in the forest garden and are also going to be sort of resistant to pests and disease. I saw that you did a bit of selecting or have a collection of different goose plums and wild plums that I know that beach plums are, you know, are not susceptible to the the major disease that kills off most plum varieties. Is it, I think it's black knot. I'm not sure if that's the case for. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's the case for the wild goose plums or the goosehaw plums that you have. But could you talk about those a little bit? The story behind that selection of plants. Each population of those, depending on what it was, some of it was. You know, originally, I think the original, my beach plum experience came from uh, on the East Coast, more in Massachusetts, and they would buy seeds, I think, from plants uh, on the Eastern seaboard. And I grew many of those, a lot of those. And I was like, boy, this is really easy. You know, <laughs> I just love those, you know, two or three years, and then you'd have this fruit. And I, my mom taught me how to make jam. So I was always constantly making jam out of the beach plums, giving it away for Christmas time. I still do that. I love doing that. And then the wild goose plum was, was a more elaborate affair because I had to, I'd read about it, but I couldn't find it. And there was a guy in Nafex who said, oh, you know, Ken, you don't want to grow those from seed, but I can give you sign wood we'll put it on a rootstock, on an American rootstock. And, and I did that, put them out on this hill 
and they grew out there, but no fruit for, I think, seven or eight years. And finally, one day I looked out there, I saw this crow flying back and forth. And I was like, what the heck? So I went out there and I got some of the seeds from that. And it was from that one plant, that one plant. It didn't have very much fruit on it. And I think it was because of the pollination, but I was able to uh, expand it into other plants and then eventually other populations. So that was a, like a Pandora's box of insane, like fruits that tasted like sour cherry and some that were like, just like the fruits from the California plums, very soft and sweet. I was just very happy about that. Just there's so much diversity in that population. It would be very easy for someone to replicate that. So I started selling the sign wood and the, the seeds of it, but I really think the value of it is in the seeds. If I were to do it again, I would probably do all seeds with it and then some that I liked a lot. But there's there are a type of plant, uh, because of this tartness aspect, all the plums, of course, in the <laughs> all plums everywhere are very sweet. And uh, so these were the only things that I could grow that were free of black knot because the black knot was just rampant on everything else I tried. And I lost most of all those selections that I thought I could maybe squeak by and I couldn't. Can I have a question about just in general when you're working with whether it's trying to start a population of a species or in this case where you're growing out the seedlings of, of a improved uh, cultivar or improved selection. How how do you think about the idea of of things becoming true to seed or things having a lot of variability in their the next generation? I mean, we're probably all familiar with apples and how they're kind of unpredictable, um, and maybe it's the same with with prunus as well. And but of, of course, you know, you're working with you know so many different genera and families of of plants. In some cases, do you sort of just explore and say, what happens if I plant these seeds? Or is there ways to research and, and learn more about, you know, if I plant these seeds will be similar to the the properties of, of uh, what I'm looking for? Or is this a plant that doesn't come true to seed? I think it's that, that apple, the apple thing that scares people. They go, oh my God, you can't do that because there's just too much variation. And um, for an orchard, that variation would be difficult to manage in some ways for some types of plants. For other, other plants, like the beech plum, for instance, that variation is not a problem to manage. And I, I see a use for, for, the, for some of these populations in public uh, settings where the variation is not going to affect anything. People will still pick it. As long as it's a healthy fruit, there's some difference in color or even a small difference in yield, it's not going to be a big deal. And so that's where I think the foraging or the permaculture plantings, especially if it was a public situation or it was a little bit more pronounced and there was more of them, that diversity is a uh, is fantastic to have. Then the other aspect of it is, well, what about apples? 
if you did that with apples, and I did do that with apples, and I still am trying it, the issue becomes, what are you going to do with that apple? Is this something you're going to make cider out of? Are you going to make jelly? Or is it an eating apple? And it becomes a use thing. And my thought is that we've dumbed down the fruits to the point where everything begins to taste the same so why not use these this diversity to our advantage in making things that that oh there's there's so much there uh there's so many different flavors i didn't know existed in an apple i know there's some breeding that was done in europe in uh, the uk that where they the apples were shrunk in size, but they're also uh, tasty. They have a good flavor and they're not necessarily high in bitters or sharpness that much. But at the same time, geez, could we use that in making different things? And some some Apple, I think you may know them too, uh, some of these folks that work within this field, they're like, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna use these more diverse apples to create something with that will help blend with other more milder flavored things. So I still think there's room for hedgerows of diverse apples and crab apples. And I'm always surprised that every time I do, I would cycle through this population of something, I'd go, boy, you know, I almost wanted to think, well, maybe grafting isn't such a hot idea. But it, it still plays a role in modern agriculture. It probably will for the next few thousand years. But eventually, I think another opportunity exists where we could have these fruit forests that essentially every plant's different. I don't see a reason why we could, couldn't do that. And then also teach people how to use those fruits in a different way, uh, whether it's making syrup, whether it's fermentation, whether it's jam or jelly, I, I think we've forgotten how to do that. I know nowadays you go to the store and it's those apples are you know just so highly. I mean, yeah, they're delicious. They're good eating apples, but wow, there's not a lot of variation between them, really. Yeah, I definitely agree. I remember when I the lab that I worked in for for my uh, graduate work was a, a walnut breeding lab, and we talked a lot in the chestnuts as well. Uh, we talked a lot about avoiding bottlenecks and, you know, when you're, when you hold on to just a few varieties, even if they're good varieties, and that's what you make up your, your orchard or your population with the subsequent generations are just not going to be as diverse or robust. And in some cases they'll fizzle out because there's just not enough diversity in the population to maintain a healthy population. So there's lots of reasons to, to keep, to keep it diverse. Yeah. It'd be better if the populations were spread out more. So every county in the country had its own fruit orchards that were uh, public public accessible so people could go and just pick fruit for fun. We, we have that a little bit here in the United States, I think, you know, because people pick wild blueberries, they pick wild raspberries, they may uh, pick morale mushrooms. But, you know, as a permaculture person, you know, geez, there's a lot more we could we could grow on a bigger scale that wouldn't require spray that people would probably love to pick and eat. <laughs> it's very true. And I think in terms of climate resilience, it's also really important, you know, thinking to the future. Oh, yeah. 
thinking about what gene- how genetic diversity is a key to having something that, you know, to actually having tree crops that can produce crops and be resilient and sort of like hedge. It's like we're hedging our bets a little bit. We're not we're not putting all of our um, yeah. We're not putting everything on just the golden delicious apple. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think you were right there because then if there was these more diverse plantings, I mean, people do take advantage of wild apples a little bit. And and you know, have you ever driven along the highway and you go, "Hey, that looks like a pretty good apple," you know? You maybe you'll even stop, you know, to get cuttings and and there was one apple that I've always saw in my hometown, and and this is true. My father, I was signing, I was working with the people in the cemetery, uh, with my my father. He had passed, and you know we were signing some papers. And out in front was this one apple tree I knew as a kid, and I said, "Man, it's always got good apples on it." He goes, "Yeah, people stop here and get those apples all the time to feed the deer," and I go, "Well, would you mind if I got a cutting from it?" <laughs> And he goes, no, I don't mind. So I had that apple tree at my farm too, you know. But everyone knows these these wild apples, and there are there are some. I think Purdue or not Purdue, but Cornell may have a wild apple project. But a lot of the wild apple scenario is because of this diversity. That's what's really creating all this different these different flavors. It's not because someone's breeding it. It's because it, because nature's doing it. And I have found, you know, there's a population that I found that had the, what happened is, is that the first groups, you could see there was huge variation and then it kind of stabilized. And you could see the apples were all maybe inch and a half or so kind of light green. And that was kind of like the model. <laughs> And you could see that that the Malus domestica, you know, it was it had kind of leveled out and was kind of not as diverse. You know, the, the original one maybe got crossed with some crab apples and some other things, but then it kind of calmed down. And uh, you'll find a lot of populations like that. Maybe at first it's all over the charts and then it'll kind of settle down into a certain thing. And for me, I just originally I really had thought that. I was like, well, I don't know why anyone would graph those because the the seedlings are fine just the way they are. And the one that really surprised me was thimbleberry. When I started working with thimbleberry, I was like, well, this is totally uniform. There's no reason to, to do selection, you know, but, you know, that's people in horticulture. They're used to having name varieties. They're used to having that type of uniformity. And it's hard to convince people otherwise, for sure. That apple tree that you um, mentioned that was at the cemetery, was that the Kelly Renee apple? No, no, that, yeah, that, that one was was a a seedling from a russet tree that was up in Northern Michigan. The Kelly Renee was, I grew from seed. It had grown into a nice tree and it had quite a bit of the russet. And I I recently talked to someone that does breed apples. He was mentioning that these russet apples with their thick skin is, is something to be desirable from a, a standpoint of a cider usage and also low spray or no spray. So the one from my father, the cemetery, 
that one, I don't have that fruiting yet, but that was a kind of a bright red apple. It was in a, in a lawn and it may have been a rootstock for a crab apple that the crab apple died. And so the rootstock took over and that's what the apple is. So I'm looking forward to when that fruits again. Very interesting. And honestly, I feel like every plant that you grow has such an interesting story attached to it. One that I'd like to hear about is your selection for Chinese quince. I learned from my friend Kyle that uh, you produce potentially one of the most cold hardy selections of Chinese quince. I'd just like to hear about it. Could we talk about that? That that was a lot of uh, disappointment (laughs) because of fire blight. And so what had happened was there was three different populations, two species, and the one species, I had gotten a whole row of them to fruit, and they were just growing so beautifully. And then we had this very warm 90 degree plus high humidity and uh, fire blight, and it took out almost all of them. And I was like, wow, that is really bad. (laughs) And I lost almost all of them. I think there's two or three left. And then I had another species called Cathiensis, which is um, actually almost tastes the same. But eventually I whittled it down to these two plants and they're quite sizable now. I think the problem with that particular species was, you know, it wasn't cold hardiness as much as it was the uh, fire blight. I was just shocked at how how powerful that was with that particular plant. And I've noticed that too. I lost, I had a really nice collection of mountain ash from all over the world, actually, including some from Pakistan with super large fruit that somebody had sent me from the USDA. That was, those were really amazing. But the fire blight is a particularly strong here in North America. We have a lot of very warm weather and it spreads, there's really not a lot you can, much you can do about it. It also took out a lot of my, my original pear trees too. But it's a good example really of having a diversity of plants because the seedlings from these groups are now pretty much immune or are long gone. So the ones that I have survived are completely immune to the disease. So you can, you can cycle through uh, something like that quickly as long as you have seedlings of it, you know, to to back it up. I have a Stacy pear in Michigan. The fire blight had taken that out, but the seedlings from it, I lost maybe two or three, but the rest of them are fruiting now. And the question is what to do with them after that. So then that, that's kind of the dilemma I'm at with my farm. Is it really worth naming something from this particular group of plants or just, you know, offering it a seed for something that people may want to use uh, in the future. There's some wild forms of pear that I got that are the original Pyrus communis, and they're barely edible. You, can, you can't even eat, bite into them. They're so astringent. And it's kind of like the crab apples of uh, before apples became things. But I still think many of these astringent and very strong, powerful fruits have medicinal properties as well as health benefits. And you and I have found, you know, done did some research on that. And I think one of the things that will probably come from this is that these these fruits will be grown to maybe cure or help people prevent diseases. 
there's just really an amazing array of things in those that we're just discovering. So I, I'm I'm very excited about it. That is all really so fascinating. <laughs> there's so much there, yeah. So uh, we talked a little bit about the potatoes. I understand that you also did a b- decent amount of selection work with other tuber crops like uh, sunchokes and groundnuts. Is that the case? Yeah, the sunchokes, we, d- we did that by collecting seeds. And in order to create the seeds, we had to have a lot of different uh, varieties together because normally sunchokes don't produce very many seeds. And then once we did that, we grew out, I think it was a couple thousand or a thousand maybe, I guess. Then we taste tested many of them and looked at the way that they grew. And we kept um, quite a few of them and started propagating them and gave them names. And that was well received. There, people liked the, uh, the smaller ones that were smooth and round, almost like a potato. Also, one of my customers sent me a whole slew of different varietal names and we started growing those at the farm and we had way <laughs> had way too many of those uh, as far as varieties it's hard to keep them separated you know so we grew them in these big grow bags to keep them all contained that worked out very well i would i would probably do that again i have found uh, one or two selections that i think will do better in those grow bags and I'm hoping to give them to Fedco this year. That was very easy to do. And I would recommend if people are interested, you can develop these sunchokes that are more clumpy and have maybe a little better flavor, not as sunchoke-like. <laughs> that was a fun project to do because there was so much diversity in it. Everyone is different. It's amazing. It's just amazing how every sunchoke is, tastes different, grows different, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> and then the groundnuts, the groundnuts I did because I was real interested in protein, like a protein crop. And what I discovered was that the previous breeder, the black mom, guy, very nice uh, person that really worked on this and did a great job. And he did the normal typical plant breeding thing where, you know, he selected for size and uh, less of the little runners and for me, I was like, well, you know, that's fine, but how are you going to be using this? Are you going to be making mashed potatoes or, you know, mashed groundnut potatoes or how is that going to work? And so I found in populations, these ones that had these real small, dense clusters of tubers next to each other. So maybe there'd be like a string of five or 10 tubers all next to each other on a string. So I kind of concentrated on that and sold those for for quite a few years. And then I moved the collection, um, hoping to kind of bring it out of storage again. I have it in one of my greenhouses. Probably the ones that are in the wild that people find are probably just as good as the ones that I've selected because the Native Americans transported those and moved them around a lot. So it's very likely you could find a variety or a type that would be perfect in your garden. They they kind of need a little more irrigation, but they're so easy to grow and they just skip along the ground. So you can just pull up a whole string of them. You don't even need a shovel to dig them. So it's they're kind of handy and they they taste really good. They're and they're high in protein. They're very high in protein. I don't know what'll ever happen to those. I know people are trying to grow them and make them available. 
again, but I'm not sure how they're going to end up on people's plates in the future. <laughs> yeah. I mean, especially with sunchokes, I feel like there's sort of a negative opinion that a lot of people have because of the inulin. Right. Are there any other um, selections that you'd like to talk about that we missed? Well, not really. I'm, I'm giving a talk on uh, plant breeding here in a couple of weeks. And I really didn't want to do that. I, I, I don't like the word plant breeding, first of all. But the one of the things that I'm trying to to show is, you know, about monocultures and kind of the dangers of monocultures and really how to step away from those. And my example is corn. I, you know, I recently created this population of corn. Basically, I went, it's, it's basically taking a cornfield and turning it into a forest where every, every corn plant is radically different than the one next to it. And the idea behind that is just to show people that we don't we can harness this power that nature has in the in the soils. We can harness that nutrition from the soils by having this diversity. That's the only way that's going to happen. If we if we're eating monocultures, we're going to get monoculture food. And you know, that's monocultures means it's going to be one similar type of nutrition, one similar flavor. And that's what society, that's what humanity is living on right now. And I think, I truly believe this is the beginning of a new age where we'll be able to go back to almost to what we had a diet, you know, thousands of years ago where we ate a diversity of plants and seeds and nuts and berries and fruits and not so clone. Everything is so cloned out, you know, uh, to the point where we've kind of lost our way in some ways. So anyway, that's all I have to say. <laughs> Wise words. And I, I completely agree. So Ken, where can people find you if they want to reach out or if they're interested in um, acquiring some of what you have available? One thing they can do, and I've been trying to tell people this, if they want to visit my farm, they can. They just go to the front of the, the website, Oiko Street Guard website, and contact me. And this fall, I bring people out, and there's no, no, um, you know, some sort of cost or anything. You can make a donation if you want. But basically, I have different crops that I bring people out to taste and enjoy, and I just love to do that. So that's one thing. Um, the seed thing kind of starts in um, October, November sort of thing. And I'll start putting up some of the new seed crops that they can purchase through me. And I'm trying to find another vendor, other vendors to lower the quantities and the cost too. And I have, I have found some, some opportunities there. So hopefully for smaller purchases for yards or for small gardens, people can purchase the seeds too so fantastic and thank you for joining us you are a wealth of knowledge on tree crops and this has been fantastic yeah and ken thanks again for for all of your hard work over the last however many decades i don't know how long you've been at this but you're you've provided a great service to the world and provided a lot of amazing genetics i know you're continuing to do that so just want to say say thanks I, I hope hope both you guys can come and visit my farm someday, man. I'd love to show you around. We'll definitely have to make that happen. Yeah, we'd love to. Great. Come. Love it. All right. Thanks so much. Good night.